Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, restoredtemecula.church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I think for the fourth time, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here, which you can keep repeating that, but it might actually not make sense what my name is or how to spell it, but I won't confuse you. We'll just go with it. My name is Herrick, and I'm one of the pastors here along with Tom. Uh, Tom and Ebony send their love, their hello, their away with the family, making some memories on vacation. So I'm going to be preaching today. And this morning, we are going to be continuing our Jesus Is series. We've been going through the Gospel of John since sometime in 2018, and we're getting close to the end, which is pretty remarkable. And we have been journeying with the disciples through the lens of the Apostle John. John may have been Jesus' closest friend on earth. So we get just a remarkable, beautiful portrait of Jesus' life, his teachings, who he was, what he did, and what it means for us from people who are, you couldn't be closer to Jesus than what John was. And as I was thinking about like, how do I succinctly summarize what we have learned over the past three years, I realized I can't really do it. But what I can do is I can say this. I wrote this down and I was like, this this helps me. Jesus is, it's the story of Jesus, the King of heaven, returning to establish his rule on earth. And it happened in ways that his earliest disciples could hardly fathom. They saw it, but they, they couldn't believe it. It's like they couldn't believe or understand what was happening. So today, what we're going to look at is this reality that there's much pain and misunderstanding that Jesus' disciples had as they were dealing with the fallout of his murder and execution on a Friday. And we're going to catch up with them on Sunday, actually pre-dawn, before the, the sun rises. Some of the questions that I think that they were grappling with that I think are probably relevant to us, um, if you can imagine journeying with Jesus for three years and then he's falsely tried, he's, he's re- he, uh, a murderer, an insurrectionist is released in his place so that Jesus ended up dying. So he was betrayed by his people and he died and you think he's the Messiah, he's the King of Israel. You might have questions like, what did he really come to do? Why did he pick us? Why is following him so hard and confusing? Why didn't he come out and just say things really clearly in ways that we could understand? Sometimes Jesus spoke in riddles, he told little stories and people's heads were spinning like, I don't know what this means. Happens a lot. Where is he now? I can't see him, I can't hear him. What is he doing? Where is he at in this very moment? What does he want from me? Big one is like, if the Messiah came, why is nothing getting better? Why does it seem like things are getting worse? What is this all about? And maybe like most of all, I wish I could see him and talk to him and get this all sorted out. You ever had that desire of like, man, I just wish I could see Jesus. I wish I could just ask him and get this all sorted out. I think those guys probably felt that, his disciples, men and women. They had questions, they felt confused, just like you and I do as we follow Jesus. They, I think they're gonna ask these same questions when they're hurting especially. So my prayer for this morning as I've been prepping this message, I've been thinking it through, is just that we'd be able to come alongside the disciples 
to actually experience their pain with them so that we can then be encouraged by what they discovered about Jesus because they walked away with a ton of hope. And my hope is that this morning that we'll walk away with loads of hope even as we press into something that nobody likes to talk about, which is grief. So we're gonna join them as they race into the tomb on the third day and how they find out that new life actually begins at a tomb. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for every person in this room. I thank you that you know them, that you love them, and that you love me, that you love us, and that you're for us, and that you're with us. And we're going to see that in this text really clearly. And I pray that you would empower me to share from this text, from my own life experience, the, true, the beauty of Jesus' resurrection, the beauty of the third the tomb that was empty on the third day and what it means for our lives today. For that you'd open eyes and ears around the room to receive and to hear what you have to say. We love you, Father. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Marla Harrelson, come on up. Uh, we have 18 verses today and I'm gonna have uh, Marla read them. So a bit, little bit of context, a little bit of context for um, uh, what's happening here. Oh, you got it, great. I got it here too if you need it. Uh, a little bit of context for what's happening here. This is the third day. It's the morning of the third day. It's dark outside. It's before the sun rises. And we're going to catch up with Mary Magdalene, who if you don't know who she is, she was a woman who, when Jesus met her, she had seven demons in her. If that sounds strange and mysterious to you, it does to me as well. Jesus met her, cast the demons out, changed her life. And so she was coming on the third day, actually, most likely because a part of the culture and the custom of the time would be that you would come after a certain amount of time to bring spices into the tomb. So she's going to the tomb of Jesus where he's been dead for three days. He was put in the tomb on Friday. It's Sunday morning. So she's coming to bring spices. And so we're going to read out of John 20, verses 1 to 18, what she finds when I ask Marla to share because you're going to be listening to me a lot today. So... Take it away, Give you a break. <laughs> okay, um, the empty tomb. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, 
Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. And this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) She asked me if you could do that. I said yes. Man, what a text. (laughs) What, What a remarkable text. Um, right now on my iPad, you can't see this, but it says the title of the message, and then it says like one out of how many pages. Right now, it literally says out of 500 pages of notes. I don't have 500 pages of notes, but I could easily have filled it up if I had had time. There's riches here to mine and excavate that we could chew on for the rest of our lives, but let's go ahead and start first with Peter and with John, and then we'll talk about Mary after the fact, uh, later, I should say. She's not an after, She's not an afterthought at all. She's a primary character here. But I want to start with Peter and John. So Mary shows up probably to anoint Jesus's body. And all of a sudden it's like, they have taken him. Who is they? I don't know, but somebody, they have taken Jesus's body. So she runs back and she tells the disciples, what sort of hypotheses might they come up with about what happened? I think they're probably the most likely kind of working uh, theory that they would have gone with is that Jesus may have been the victim of a grave robbery. Grave robbery might sound weird to you, and it it is, but it was pretty common in the ancient world, actually. It's something that uh, Rome, so this is, Israel's under Roman occupation. Roman, there's Roman rule all over the land. And so Rome is ruling, effectively, and they dealt with grave robbing. It became such a problem that the, I think it's Emperor Claudius, who just came in after Jesus' time, maybe in like the next 10 years or so, it got so bad that he's like, I'm making that a capital punishment. If you rob a grave, if you roll the, the, the stone away, I will kill you. That's, that's how serious it got. Um, that was his view on, on things. So if you were a grave robber, you could actually pay with that with your life. Um, but it was common enough to be like, that's probably what happened. Why would somebody rob a grave? Seems pretty weird. There was, if you remember the story, I think it was last week that Tom taught Nicodemus, who was one of the private disciples who became a public disciple when Jesus died. Nicodemus had brought 75 pounds of like perfumes and ointment. So that would have cost buku bucks, um, worth a lot of money. And so you might rob a grave to take off with valuables. Uh, That's the reason why this was pretty common. And there were linens, too. The linens were valuable. They were expensive. So you might grab those things. Um, So that's probably what they're expecting to find. So here's here's what happens. They're running. John arrives first. uh, And he walks, he runs up, and he sees that that the stone has been rolled away. And he can't bring himself to go in. Why? I don't know. He may have just been kind of overcome by the moment. I mean, it's, there was a sense of like, if you go in there, if, if you're a practicing uh, Jew, if you go in there, like you would be ceremonially unclean by being around a dead body. So maybe he has that consideration in mind. We don't know. Or maybe he was just overcome. It's like, this is my friend. 
I love him, my best friend in the world. We're already going through enough, and now we're dealing with grave robbery. So he was overcome in some way. And then Peter has no such problems. He just plows right in. That's what Peter's like. He's older, slower, but he has no inhibitions whatsoever. He just dives in into the, to the, the tomb. And what Peter sees shocks him. The valuable linens are there. They're still there. And it's not just that. It's the way that you encounter or that he would have encountered the linens. That was just breathtaking. Uh, scholars talk about this. If you read commentaries on John, you'll hear about this in, from a bunch of different angles. But scholars note that it was as if Jesus' body just passed through the linens and vacated them. Uh, N.T. Wright is a famous scholar. He says it's sort of like finding a collapsed balloon that the air has gone out of. It's sort of like that when you, when you walk up to these linens. If someone had moved the body, this is not what you would see. You would not see, you probably wouldn't see linens, period, let alone right where the body would have been. And then the, the, the cloth that was covering Jesus' head was folded up. Sort of like you would expect if you were coming inside to a warm house from the cold, you might take your scarf off and your hat and like kind of set it aside. You don't need it anymore. That's what they, that's what they saw. This was no grave robbery. All the goods were still there, but there is no body. And I can imagine the questions. What happened? Where is he? What does this mean? Uh, this, this isn't explicitly stated in the text, so I'm taking a little bit of artistic license here. But I have a feeling that when they walked in to that tomb, there was probably a surprise. It's not the stench of death. It's a sweet-smelling aroma of these spices. So it's confusing. It's delightful and confu delightfully confusing. 75 pounds of perfume, I'm going to do that. So it's a powerful moment. John comes in and it says that he believed. This is John penning this. And he's like, I, I believed. But he says very honestly at the same time, I didn't understand. This is Jesus' closest friend who had been with him for three years, day in, day out. He's the one who, um, if you read, it's just like the most tender, um, like moving pictures. It's just like, I'm the one who reclined at the table with Jesus and put my head on his, on his breast. He's that kind of a friend. And he's like, I didn't get it. I didn't get what this was. I didn't get what this meant. He says it very honestly. And then I think Peter would have said the same thing. Peter was tight with Jesus too. In Luke uh, 24, it actually tells us that the disciples, when they heard this news about the empty tomb, they didn't believe. And Peter, it says that he like rushed in and then he left. And then depending on the translation they look at, it'll say he was in awe. He was marveling. And then some translations, I, like, I think I like this the most. It just says like he was wondering what happened. <laughs> it's just kind of like, what is this? Wrapping his mind around it. What do Peter and John teach us about following Jesus? A lot of things, but I think one of the main ones, if you're taking notes, I would write this down. It's that understanding comes in stages. Understanding comes in stages. They've been with Jesus for years. What did Jesus tell them about his death? I'm going to die, and I'll be back on the third day. I mean, he spelled it out in, like, pretty good detail. Uh, if... I don't know, if I was to do that or if you were to do that, I'd be impressed. And I would hope that that would be reciprocal because that's pretty crazy if 
I told you this is how I'm going to die. And I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be executed, and then it happens. But then like that other part about I'm going to rise from the dead, it's just like it never clicks. It never connects. It's so unbelievable that they almost miss it. It's crazy. But understanding comes in stages. God does not reveal everything at once. Is another way that if you watch The Chosen, you may have remember that line. I like that line a lot. God doesn't reveal everything at once. And as I was chewing on this, I really felt like it would be good for you just to share a little bit about how, what this looked like in my own life. Where have I seen this? It's everywhere in my life. And I only have so much time, so I just kind of narrowed it in on one part of my life that I feel like is where it was like just so clear. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my upbringing. So I was, um, I was, I've told many of you guys probably know that I was born in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a Spanish. It was part of Spain for a while. And so part of what we received from Spain was the Catholic faith. So I grew up Catholic. So I was in and around Christian teaching. I was in and around Christian uh, rituals. I was around the Bible. I mean, the Bible was read every Sunday from different parts of the Bible. So I was around the Bible, but I did not get it. I did not get it at all. I remember once being in the confessional. Has anybody ever been in a confessional? Like a Catholic? Okay, a few, a few people have nod, nodded their heads. So it's this um, not intimidating moment where you sit down with a priest in private and then just unpack your sin and wickedness. Uh, and so here I am, I don't know, I'm like 10 or 11. I forget exactly when I did my first um, confession. I, mean, I was a little bit older. But I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, it's been months since I've actually done this. And the first question, at least at that point, I don't know how, how it works now, is how long has it been since your last confession? The first thing I did was lie. It's been three weeks, it's been like nine months. The first thing I did was lie about how long it had been. But it was weird because even though I was lying and deceitful and totally in the dark about what any of this meant, I felt like this relief of like, when I walked out of there. Strange stuff. Um, I was outwardly conforming to expectations, but inwardly I was completely lost. And I just couldn't say it. I, I couldn't say it. That was 18 years of weekly church involvement for me and years of Christian school that I just summarized very quickly. And it wasn't until I went to the University of San Diego, that's where I went and did my undergraduate school, my, my bachelor's, that I started to make more sense of things. And I had a bunch of guys, I was a freshman, I was 18 years old, I wasn't living at home anymore, and I had a bunch of dudes on my floor who were Christians, and what they wanted to do was they wanted to create a space, an environment for people to get around the Bible and talk about it. And for people to grapple with who is Jesus and what has he done and what is he like and what does he have to do with me. And when I got there, I think I had had just enough um, Christian, biblical kind of teaching to be like open, to be like, oh man, I, I don't understand this. I don't get it. And so I started to go to a Bible study. And what was probably more impactful the Bible study was the fact that these guys actually opened up their lives and shared with me, like what they were going through. They're 18-year-old guys, so obviously like they're very young. We were all really young. But there was a depth to their journey with Jesus. Like they had really experienced him in such a way where they wanted to make their life about him, even when it wasn't cool, which that was like, you're 18, you're like meeting a bunch of new people who doesn't want just to be accepted and for people to like you and stuff. And they were, they were like, people might hate me, but I'm, gonna, I'm here because of King Jesus. And he's really good, and I'm going to tell you about it. So that really impacted me. I began to see some things kind of tangibly. It was sort of like, as I was thinking about it, it's sort of like a dimmer. 
So if you have the dimmer on the lowest setting, it is dark. And obviously, if you slide the dimmer up, it gets increasingly, uh, there's light and things become more clear. So it was sort of like in the first time, for the first time in my life in college, the dimmer started to kind of go like this. So it kind of just started to slowly go up. And it was like rays of light really began to break in. And, and what was fascinating about it was you might expect that ah, I would run towards it. I retreated into the darkness. The light was like, it was overwhelming. The darkness was more familiar and more comfortable. And what I mean by darkness, I mean like finding earthly security in relationships, finding comfort in earthly pleasures, finding pride in my life and my accomplishments, um, my stuff, my name, my opinions, and so on and so forth. That was more comfortable. But I saw this power at work in these people that freaked me out. I was drawn in, but also kind of repulsed by it in a good way. I was like, I'm not ready for that. I don't know about that. So stage one, in the dark. Stage two, running from the light. That's how I could classify those early years. Stage three was like opening a window. Or like a, yeah, if you're on an airplane, kind of like raising the window. What happened was sitting in the darkness took a crazy toll on me. Those things that I found comfort in failed massively. The things in my life that were promising gave way to disappointment and pain. At a certain point, I realized that I was sitting in the dark. It was like this self-awareness came about like, oh, it's really dark in here. Uh, this is all I've known, so the eyes are kind of adjusted, but it hit me like, oh, I've been sitting in the dark. And then there was one day where that kind of like the ray of light just kind of started to come through. I was driving through uh, Point Loma. I was driving past the, a church that I had visited a couple times in college. And I was like, I wonder if I could ever go back. I wonder if Jesus would ever take me back. And so the dimmer switch just kind of started to go up. I, I really started to see myself as I, as I was lost. Very, very lost. But over the course of the next few weeks, it became clear that I was lost but loved. And I realized that what I had missed all those years, which is just... The, the irony is just so thick because I had crosses on every classroom that I ever was in growing up. There was crosses on Sunday. There was crosses around my neck at times. I mean, I had, I had a little bit of a superstitious thing where I was like really scared of evil. So I would like put like crucifixes and stuff in my room. Um, I think I was more afraid of evil than I was actually aware of God's goodness and his power. But that's where I was. But it hit me. That was for me. That was for me. He actually had to die for me. I knew I had loved the darkness, but now I actually had a desire to live in his light. And Jesus overcame my darkness and unbelief through his love, through his relentless love, because I ran for five years. I ran away from Jesus. I hid from Christians. I think I've told this before, but there was one day where there's a Christian coming my way in the library, and I jumped into the stacks just so that they wouldn't see me. Real low moment uh, in life, but that's what, I mean, I was in the dark. I was, yeah, I was like a spider that would kind of move towards the dark crevice, um, whatever spiders do back there. That was me. But I was in awe and wonder once I decided, when I realized, like, that cross was for me. I was in awe. Not that I understood fully what it meant by any means. That's a continual process. But I was in awe. I was a brand new person. I was a baby Christian, a baby disciple. 
But as these stories that we're reading about, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they show us understanding comes in stages. God doesn't reveal everything at once. So I just want to quickly ask the question, like, where are you grappling with misunderstanding and confusion today? Where are you grappling with misunderstanding and confusion today? Maybe it's scripture. John, who wrote scripture at one point, was like, I don't get scripture. I don't get it. Maybe it's struggling to understand what scripture says and how it relates to your life or our world. Maybe it's more of a personal thing. Maybe it's just an ongoing struggle, an addiction, um, a pain point. Um, could be depression. Or it could be a sin problem that just isn't getting better. And you're kind of wondering, like, why? What is this? Uh, it could be broader, too. I think there's, uh, in our world today, there's a broader confusion about where are we going as a, as a world, as a society, as human beings, where are we going? And you might have like concerns about men, we're falling in a ditch, one way or the other, whatever ditch that might be. Where is God? Why isn't He pulling us out of this ditch? I think what this text and my experience has taught me is that understanding comes in stages, which really means that you and I. It has massive implications for how we carry ourselves amidst all of this tension that we carry. What do I mean? I already mentioned this, but I, I, for years, it was like a hiding game. It was downplaying. It was presenting things as better than they really are. I'm not saying that I'm not prone to that anymore. I'm just saying that that is all I knew at that time. And sometimes that's what happens when, when we misunderstand, when we misunderstand Jesus, when we misunderstand what he did for us, when we misunderstand what it all means. We, we can hide, we can downplay, we can present things as better than they really are. Why? Because we don't actually know or we're not experiencing the fact that he died for us, that he died to wash us, to cleanse us, to make us new people. So where's the confusion in your life? Where might you need to experience like the truth of Jesus' death for you? and his resurrection for you. I think something really important about that, how do we carry it? We can learn from John himself. John 29 says this, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Who did he write that about? Himself. So if Jesus' best friend is owning that, he didn't get it, then we as learners can be honest and humble about our own misunderstandings and confusion, our own questions, our own doubts. And I'm going to let Dre talk about that in two weeks. So I'm not going to get into the doubt piece. We're going to focus on grief. But you want to make sure you come back for that in two weeks because she's going to unpack that. But if this is what Jesus' disciples experienced after three years of being with him, can, I just, can we just normalize this? Misunderstandings, confusion, it's just a part of the game. It's a part of getting to know Jesus. But there's more. This isn't just for people who are early in their walks just for the first time kind of experiencing Jesus. This is for everyone, no matter how long you've been a disciple. Is anyone in this room going to get three years of nonstop connection with Jesus in the flesh? No. We're not, we're not out ahead of John. We'll just leave it at that. We never move on from being learners. However, we get a choice about how we walk through the confusion and the disappointment and the pain. We get a choice. We can be humble and honest, or we can... Pretend that we're better than we really are. Always a choice. 
This has massive implications, and this is the longest point. We're almost done with this point. This has massive implications with how we bear with each other. Think about this. If the other people in the room with you, whatever room that is, whether it's your family, whether it's the church, whoever, if they're the same as you and understanding comes in stages, how do we relate to each other? How should we relate to each other? Patience with God. A lot of times we don't realize our impatience is actually with God with God and how he's working in someone else's life. Sometimes it could be like backing off. Sometimes wisdom says back off. That's part of what it was like for me. I had Christian friends who had to back off in college. Sometimes, though, it's patiently pressing in with someone. In any case, what's the common denominator? Patience. And here's the good news. Jesus, we're going to get to this next week, but we get to this all the time. Jesus, Jesus, his spirit is with all of his disciples. So you, you aren't like figuring this stuff out on your own. If you've got people in your life that you love who are going through something difficult and painful, if you are going through something difficult and painful yourself, if your misunderstanding is, if this understanding is slow to come online, you got to keep in mind that you're in a partnership with Jesus, a real life partnership with him. He's a real person who speaks to you, who knows you personally, who knows the person that you're seeking to love, and he is wise, and he has wisdom to give. And it, actually, I can't get into it now. James just talks about how he, is, he loves to give wisdom to anybody who asks. He's not stingy. So what's my point? Understanding, it comes in stages. Or that God doesn't reveal everything at once. And that's really important as we think about our lives, as we think about what we're going through, and also as we're thinking about how to help and love each other. Understanding comes in stages. So that's John, and that's Peter. Let's move on to Mary, and this will go quicker. I want to turn over to Mary. She also had misunderstandings, and hers actually led to grief. Probably ugly tears uh, on that morning. The sort of like if you're driving through heavy rain, you know it can be really hard to see. You ever been in a situation like that? Uh, where, you know, yesterday sprinkled a little bit. In other places in the world, it rains hard, and it can get really, really hard to see. And I think Mary was experiencing that kind of grief where it's like she can't even hardly see through her tears. And I think that speaks to something deeper. In that moment, Mary couldn't see beyond her pain. Where is she at? She's probably alone, and she's certainly without Jesus at the beginning of the story. She couldn't see beyond her pain. She's without Jesus, dot, dot, dot. Or so it seems. Then two angels show up. That's always a great transition in a story. Then two angels show up. And she's in so much pain that the angels can't get through to her. Have you thought about, have you ever considered, have you ever heard this passage before? The angels don't make a dent in her grief. So if you've ever been in a situation where your best efforts to encourage someone fall fat, fall flat, Take heart, you're in good company. The angels in heaven are like, yeah, I couldn't do it either. (laughs) Why is that? Man, okay, now really pay attention here. (laughs) I know I talk a lot, you get going. Please hang out here with me for a moment. Mary had so many misunderstandings, it's wild. What was she looking for? A corpse. She literally wanted a corpse. If you have them, I'll take them. That would be good news to her, a corpse of Jesus. 
It's wild misunderstanding. She did not get it at all. However, her pain pointed her to a person. Mary's pain pointed her to a person, Jesus. She was looking for him. And it was like, nothing else will do. There's a song that says that. Nothing else, you know what I'm talking about? Get some nods or I'm going to start singing. It's going to get real weird. (laughs) Nothing else will do. She just wants you, Jesus, Mary. Even if it was just his corpse. Her grief was, there's a ton of misunderstanding that caused her pain and grief. But it was pointed in the right direction. It was pointed at Jesus. And you know what she discovers? He delivers a whole lot better than I even ask. He delivers far better than we even ask for. She wanted a corpse. What did she get? A man alive from the dead. Even in that, her understanding came in stages. She thought he was a gardener. A gardener. And of course, he is. (laughs) He is a gardener. The Garden of Eden is that place where God and man live together. Jesus came. He's the king. His kingdom, he wants it to spread. He wants the Garden of Eden to go out and fill the whole earth. So yeah, he was was a gardener. Again, she's speaking better than she knows. It doesn't matter because her, her grief is pointed in the right direction. Jesus. Yeah. So as I was thinking about it, here's, here's a practical thing. Uh, sometimes when you, this isn't funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. Sometimes when you're so over, but it's kind of, I don't know. When Jesus is standing right in front of you and you think he's the gardener, I guess it's kind of funny. <laughs> this is like our ability to miss. When you're, sometimes it's possible to be so overwhelmed, you can miss Jesus even if he's standing right in front of you, talking to you. And you're looking for him. <laughs> Two on that for a little while. Have a cup of coffee and think about that and think about your own life, how often that's been true. But really what's happening is the rain is falling so hard that she can't see out the window. The grief is so deep, she just can't see beyond her own pain. Yet there he stands, unseen, ready to call us by name. Just remarkable. And then what happens? I'm just going to read it again because it's so good. John 20, 14 to 16. Uh, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Mary. Rabboni, everything changed. As I was thinking about this uh, story, I started thinking about my own life. And one of the sources of pain that I haven't fully explored yet was actually moving. Uh, moving is one of those life moments where it, I know it's like really stressful because we've lived that, that out and also the, the psychologists say that. And I don't think I ever fully processed what it's like to actually move from one culture to another to move from, uh, it's America, technically. Uh, You may have to sort that out with people at times when you're, never mind. (laughs) It's part of America. It's a territory. Um, So Puerto Puerto Ricans have U.S. passports and are U.S. citizens. However, it is a different thing. It is a different thing. 
altogether. Um, it's a different culture, it's a different story, although it's, it's become one story, obviously, it's not like it's disconnected from the story of America, but it's not. We don't have the same foundation, the same origin story. We have a separate identity. We play each other in sports. It's really weird. Puerto Rico, it's kind of like America versus Montana in basketball, and we won once. Crazy. <laughs> so wild. Anyway, my point was to start talking about that. But I just remember that um, I did experience grief when we moved. I just, I didn't really know what to do with it. So when we moved, I was there until I was nine, moved to California, love California, still love California, um, be here until God calls us away. Love this place. The, the reality is, though, when you move from one culture to another, there is a shock that comes with it. It's culture shock. It's real. It starts from the time you get off the plane. It starts from when I, when I saw eight lanes of a freeway, and it's still jammed up. Uh, off the 405, just stuff like this. In Puerto Rico, it was like two-lane roads, and there's people parked on the sides. So really, it's one-lane road, so it's a long game of chicken. When you come up against another car, it's like, who's backing up first? How many cars do you have behind you? Three. How many cars do you have behind you? Six. Okay, I'm moving. <laughs> you know, it's just like a long, it's just so different. It is a different world. And it was really painful to move. And what, what we did early on was that we would go back pretty regularly. We'd go back for holidays, for Christmas, Thanksgiving, stuff like that. And that helped. Um, but there was always that return flight that was really painful. It's like saying goodbye to everybody and kind of like reopening the grief of leaving family behind, of leaving, you know, friends behind, of leaving our life behind, even though we have a new life here. It's painful. One year, um, pretty early on, my parents got this idea. We're going to surprise the kids, and we're going we're gonna to set something up that they'll really enjoy. The kids being myself, my twin brother, Louis, and my little brother, Gus. We had two cousins who didn't live on the island. They lived in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. And that was like my favorite place to visit in the world when we were young kids. I love New York City. I didn't even realize that I was wearing a New York hat today until I looked at myself in the mirror, but it's real. My favorite team were the Mets back in the day. I loved the Statue of Liberty. I loved going there. It was like a, it was like a dream. I would have taken that over Disney World. I would, have, I would have said no to Mickey, and I would have said yes to the steam that comes out of the subway in New York City and the waft and the, the whole thing. I loved it. So my parents, one year, they were like, we're going to do a layover in New York City, and we're not going to tell the kids until, like, closer to the actual day, and we're going to get to see our, your cousins. So on the way back, it'll be a little bit less painful. So the, so the day arrives, and they tell us, you're going to see your cousins in New York City. Now, the hard part is, it's not a long layover. It wasn't like we were there overnight, or we had, like, this 12-hour window. It was, like, pretty... It was just like a narrow window of time. And so we land at JFK, which if you've ever landed in JFK, it's just it's the worst. I love New York, but I hate JFK. Not the man, the, the airport is just, just the worst. It's always delayed. It takes forever to taxi anywhere. It's huge. It's awful. But I didn't care because we're going to see our cousins. And these were cousins that we just love, we had memories with. They were very near and dear to us. Here's the thing, though. This is 1993 or 4. No cell phones. We did not have a beeper. Obviously, no social media, no text messaging. None of that stuff existed at the time. We had landlines. And my, my uncle and my cousins were coming from New Jersey, so they're hitting a lot of traffic. Like, there's actually like a pretty small window of time to make this work. 
So we get off the plane, and there's just a sense of excitement of just, we're going to see them. It's going to be great. We're going to see them. It's going to be great. It made, like, leaving a lot less painful. So we get into the terminal, and we're looking around, and back then, it was just a sea of faces. It's probably like that again now. The kind of COVID is winding down, but there's just a sea of faces at the New York airport. And before long, I realized, oh, this is going to be harder than I thought to actually find my family. And we start looking all over the place. We just kind of have like a general area that we're going to meet in, and they're not there. And the minutes just kind of start to tick, tick, tick. And kind of all of that like pain and grief of, it wasn't just about uh, a meeting with, a short meeting with family. It, it was about loss. It was about like the pain of losing family, and it was like a moment to actually experience the joy of family. So we keep looking, we don't see them, and all of a sudden I'm like, they're not here. And I don't know where we're going to find them. And the time is, is running down. And we're looking. Before long, I pretty much am like, this isn't going to happen. Like all that pain of like leaving family behind kind of starts to emerge. So as I'm giving up, I hear this sound. Very loud. Like if you could do that, I don't know how to do that. Some of you may know how to do it. It goes real, real loud. It kind of cuts through all the noise. And then we knew, my uncle. That's his whistle. That's like his signature whistle. And before we know it, it's like my cousins are streaming in, my uncle's there, tears are flowing. It's a big, happy embrace. And we got to go outside for a little while because I, I, like, I was obsessed with snow at that point. So they took me out in the snow on ice. I fell on my, on my behind. It hurt, but I didn't care. Because it was just such a joy, such a relief to see them, and such a personal, and that sea of people, family. I tell this story because when Jesus says Mary, it's uh, at a moment where it was like, Rabboni. There's this, she came alive, and it was family. And that's what it's like. For every disciple, in our pain, in our disappointment, this is coming. It's coming. Whether it's now, tomorrow, in a week, in a month, at the end of your life, Jesus, his disciples, my sheep, hear my voice. And what he, I love that what Jesus, it's a little bit confusing because he's like, don't cling to me. Did you catch that? It's not a rebuke against Mary, like a harsh rebuke or anything. It's just that if you can imagine Jesus dying and then you see him again, you're like, I'm never going to let go of you again. But if she did that, guess what would happen? No spirit for us. And so now Jesus, who was locked into one place at one time in human history, now because he's, his Holy Spirit is in us, is he's everywhere. He can be in any place, in every place at once. So that's why he was like, don't hold on to me. You don't know what you're doing. Again, misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. She didn't get it. But Jesus patiently endured with her. And then he sends her to be a messenger, which, by the way, just really quickly in terms of what that means, um, in that time, women in, in that culture, women's testimony wasn't valid. It wasn't. And... Jesus told a woman first. He like told her, he's like, 
He showed himself to her. He's like, it's me. You can't miss me now because now you know that whole thing. Now go. So if I could just say, um, I know in like kind of Western church culture, things can get so strange with like with women. Jesus dearly loved women and sent them as ambassadors, as messengers, as kingdom representatives into the world. Just as valuable in many ways, like it was Mary's grief. <laughs> I don't know for sure, obviously. The text doesn't say it. But he was drawn to Mary's grief and revealed himself to her and then sent her. So it is, not only is it okay, Jesus, not, is it, not only does Jesus think women's testimony is valid, he honors the, their testimony. So we want to be a church that does that. We want to be a church that continuously honors women and their role in the church. So that's an aside, but an important one. What did Mary learn in all this? If you're taking notes, if you're looking to something to hang, hang your head on in this message, if you look for him, he will find you and reveal his love to you. If you look for him, he will find you and reveal his love to you. And what's amazing, we sang earlier about how Jesus is like, he's keeping his promises. He had a promise that he made to his disciples. He was like, your grief will turn into joy. Do you guys remember that? This was from a message months ago at this point. But he said that, and then Mary, her grief turned into joy. Jesus delivers on his promises. Even though Mary was completely confused about how it was all working out. Understanding comes in stages. But if you look for him, he will reveal, he'll find you and reveal his love to you. So again, what pain and grief are you carrying? Is it failed relationships? Is it disappointment? Is it betrayal? Is it addiction? I think for many of us, it's wounds that need tending to, that need to heal. Could be feeling lost in life or unclear on your purpose. So many areas of grief and loss. Is there anything in your life that you're like, I can't see beyond this? It's like that rain is falling so hard, I can't see beyond it. If so, I just want to quickly remind you, that's where Jesus met Mary, right there. If you look for him, he will find you and reveal his love to you. Now, the crazy part is, it may feel like that takes a long time. If you think about Mary, how many days was she in mourning? Several. Probably day and night, weeping, crying, completely confused about what happened when Jesus was killed. But when Mary met her, when Jesus met, when Jesus met Mary, that darkness faded. And so all of a sudden, the dimmer came on all the way. Almost all the way. Still misunderstanding. But enough. It was enough for her grief to be turned into joy. It wasn't instant. I think about it this way. She had to sit and kind of marinate in her own pain. There was no microwaving this thing. But the delay only made the joy deeper, better, as she experienced him. I'm going to call the band back up. We're almost done. A few chapters ago in John, we read about Jesus weeping. Do you guys remember that? Jesus wept. I think it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? Where was he standing? You guys can answer it if you know. It's going to be interactive. Lazarus. He was standing outside of Lazarus's tomb. He was weeping. And then what did he do? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Just like that. Wake up, as though he had been napping. Get up. 
But here's the crazy part. Lazarus died again. He didn't stay alive in his physical human, like the, what we have right now, what we're experiencing as physical human life. He died eventually. And now in this story, we see Mary weeping outside of a tomb. And Jesus, he was raised not back to this life, not back to the same thing. He was actually raised to new life. And what he had was a new body. And he's never to die again. He paid for sins one time. And now he's risen. And so now, because he rose to new life, so will you if you put your trust in him. And so will I. Because he, he was raised, so are you. I mean, you have um, some verses out of Isaiah 25 that I have in the back. I want you to hear these words. This is what's coming because of Jesus' resurrection. It says this, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine. He's the provider of wine. Prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. Do you get it? Meat and wine. Just what makes the heart happy and satisfies the body. Wine and meat. Who said say no to that? On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud. The shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering the nations. When he was swallowed up, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. Mary's ugly cry will become a smile. It'll become happy tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. In other words, on the other side of death, what's waiting for you? We sang about death earlier. Here we go again. That's what's waiting for you. He will call you by name. The, de- the grief of death will be turned to joy. We won't have joy in this life until we understand that that's waiting for us in the future. So again, I'm going to ask you guys to rise. If you can, if you're able. If you seek him, he will find you and reveal his love to you. Where do you need his love to be revealed in your life? This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Some of you may need to experience the joy of your salvation again. And it may not even be that you need to become a disciple. Maybe you already are, but that you need to experience his love again in a fresh way, in your grief, in your pain. You need to be reminded that what's coming is every tear being wiped away grief being turned into joy and you can experience that today and the fullness of it will come later but you can start to experience that today so let's cry out to him let's sing to him let's rejoice and be glad in this salvation i'll be up a little bit later to close this out discovering in my life is that I won't praise the Lord unless I actually experience his love. And it'll, it'll be hard to see beyond what's right in front of me if I'm not overcome by his love. 
So very, very quickly, I'll just say this. This is not, this message about grief turning into joy, about seeking him and him finding you and revealing his love to you, is, it's for today. This is something that I'm practicing regularly. And it, it doesn't have to be huge. This week, I, I just felt overcome with anxiety. Who here hasn't felt overcome with anxiety in the last week? At some point. I felt overcome with anxiety. And as I was prepping this message, I was like, oh, maybe I should practice this. Like, actually go to him, seek him in, in the pain that I'm experiencing. A lot of times, it's like, I find that anxiety is just like grief that wants to be dealt with. It's grief that needs to be processed and brought under the, the healing grace of Jesus. And so I went there, and I was like, why am I anxious? Why are you anxious, soul? And what, what actually came out of that was an encounter with Jesus' love that I needed to have, I didn't realize. I was swept up in the performance, in the proving myself, and all these different things. And as I went there with Jesus, I, I created a little bit of space, a little bit of time, and he brought me back to a very specific moment in my life that I didn't realize I experienced pain and rejection that I needed to experience his love and his grace. And he very specifically showed me this is what my grace is like. And he gave me a new message. There were messages that I drew from that interaction that left me wounded and pretty weary and I didn't even know that I was carrying it. But it was showing up as, as anxiety. Why do I say all this? If we seek him, he will find you and reveal his there is a choice that we all have. Sometimes it's going to be big things where you're like, I know I need to explore this because this has not been worked through in any um, significant way. But also it could just be like the daily anxieties, the pain points that we all experience that might be Jesus summoning you to come. It might be his way of saying, come today. Come and experience my love. Come and experience my healing and my grace. And you know what happened? I praise the Lord afterwards. Whereas I might have felt, I don't know, sometimes you feel kind of fake like Ned Flanders. Where's the Lord? You know, like it, it can just, it, it's not always, you know. But if you experience his love, if he reveals it to you in personal ways, you will praise the Lord and you won't even mind getting on your face. It's no longer weird. I'm no longer thinking about who's in the room. I'm actually just like, Jesus, you're in the room and you're amazing. I love you. So with that said, we are, we're done. We have a few more minutes. So we're just going to do a soft close. If you want to go get prayer, We've got prayer ministers over there. I'm going to be up here. If you want to find me, I'd be happy to pray for you. So, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to praise you. Really, because you're good. Because we've had and we can have and we can continue to have encounters of your love and mercy in a fresh way. In a way that leads to us praising you because we have discovered the source of new life. And we have been given new life ourselves. And that we now we get to be a part of the new creation that you're bringing to bear on this world. Because you love this world and you're going to save it and you're going to renew it and make everything new. And I think that we get to experience that today in our grief and pain. I pray that everyone here would have an encounter with you. That they would seek you in their pain and you would find them and reveal your love to them in such a way where it begins to clear up misunderstandings that we have. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay.
last thing. If you come here on, Monday, on Sunday of next week, nothing will happen, okay? We'll be at the Bible College uh, over in Murrieta.